You are listening to Noteworthy Differences. I have the pleasure of introducing our esteemed guest, uh, Dr. Aaron Donaldson, uh, who brings a remarkable background in speech and debate forensics and communication studies. With an impressive 17-year journey directing speech and debate forensics uh, teams, our guest has cultivated a deep understanding of effective communication, critical analysis, and the power of persuasion. Their expertise is in these fields has led them to become a respected educator, inspir- inspiring and um, mentoring students in the realm of communication studies. But that's not all. Our guest's uh, passion for combining uh, their interests in cinema and otherness has led them to co-host a, a captivating podcast called Fields of Glory. On this podcast, they delve into the enthralling world of sports movies providing listeners with all the lit and crit they need. By skillfully blending their knowledge of communication studies and the art of storytelling, our guest offers unique insights into the cultural significance and impact of sports movies through their engaging discussions. They they bring a fresh perspective uh, to the analysis of these films, examining the narrative effective and production uh, politics that go into their construction. Join us as we dive into an enriching conversation with our multi-talented guest, exploring their expertise in speech and debate forensics, communication studies, and their captivating role as a co-host on the Fields of Glory podcast. And with that's with uh, Alex Biggs, who I've um, interviewed just uh, previously. Welcome to the show, Aaron. Chris, thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Thank you, thank you, and my and uh, the pleasure is all mine. And yeah, just um, just a bit of background. Actually, when when um when I did reach out to you, I I think I saw your comment on the podcast that uh, or the episode that I posted with uh, Biggs, and uh, mm-hmm. I put the two and two together after actually um, considering <laughs> when I did reach out to you because you know I was I saw Doctor in your title. I'm like, oh, this would be interesting to. Uh, um, interview a doctor. That'll be cool. And uh, yeah, he's he he also um he's familiar with uh, Alex Biggs. And then uh, and then I just realized actually this is the Aaron Donaldson that uh, yeah, Alex has been talking about the whole time. <laughs> so it was the, a fun episode. Go. Uh, I got to listen to it. Alex is mm-hmm. there in Montana. I'm here in California. We grew up together a little bit. We knew each other back then. Okay. And uh, yeah, we're working together here on the network. I'm one of the producers there. And when I saw that he was on a, a different mm-hmm. podcast, I was just really pumped to hear it. And I just, I yeah. really appreciated that episode. I thought it was great. Amazing. No, that's okay. Yeah, it was my pleasure. It was, it, was, it was a great conversation, I think. Yeah. Well, we had a bit of a experience talking about the uh, the network itself. I think, um, yeah, now we'll probably dive into um, the yeah, debate and speech uh, forensics. And and just on a side note there, when, when I did read also forensics, I didn't read that side of debate and speech. And I was thinking... <laughs> He had an experience on, like, you know, the style of, uh, or to the tune of, um, you know, NCIS, like a uh, homicide detective, uh, <laughs> forensics, uh, criminal and forensics. So my, I, I, my I got my ma- well, I got my master's degree at the University of Oregon, and when I taught the class there, I would always start the first day by saying that forensics is Aristotle's word, and mm-hmm. it refers to persuading a third party. 
And so if you're here for like fingerprinting or DNA or any mm. of that, you're in the wrong room. And about a third of the class would get up and walk out as soon oh, as really? I made that announcement because <laughs> we have become so accustomed to the contemporary use mm. of this word, which is speaking particularly to how we use evidence in the court of law, the third mm. party here being the judge and the jury. Uh, that's the application of this term now. But if you go way back, it has um, an older meaning and speech and debate educators have been using that word since, you know, the 1920s, at least to describe what we do. So, yeah, it's pretty awesome. Like I, I just learned that last week. So no, that's great. <laughs> and then obviously then it's great to meet you. And then uh, you've uh, explained that well. You share a memorable or some memorable moments from your 17 years in speech and debate forensics. There's so many, you know, I spent 17 years directing programs. Um, I graduated from college in around 2003, and I competed in college for four years and in high school for three. Uh, and around 2004 is when I started at the University of Oregon. We, we just had an incredible time there. I had so many memorable experiences as the director of that program from working in a maximum security prison to, uh, you know, juvenile detention centers. We debated folks in there. Uh, we had, you know, back to back to back trips to a national debating championship final. We lost three in a row. That was tough. They won the year that I left. Um, but it was very, very fun to see the teams go year after year after year and be one of the most competitive in the country. When I was there, uh, I also got to debate in the semifinal at the world's championship. And that was probably the single most memorable moment from my career in forensics was my partner and I preparing, you get about uh, 15 to 20 minutes to prepare the topic and then you debate and you debate the best people in the world. And we were in the, the elite eight essentially, uh, which is the semifinal round. And while we were preparing, we could hear people like stomping and chanting. It sounded like a soccer game. It was the most like <laughs> anxious inducing mm. thing I've ever experienced. And uh, that was very, very exciting. From there, I went to the University of Denver to get my PhD. I coached their program. I was the assistant coach there for uh, the four years. I've directed two years schools. Uh, I just finished. I retired from coaching last year here at Cal Poly Humboldt. It's really hard to pick any one memory. Um, the successes are a lot of fun. I think one of the other notes that I would make is I have a particular memory of a good friend of mine and an assistant coach who before her first debate round ever she was like visibly shaking. I, I found her in the hallway and she was visibly vibrating. And that's not uncommon. Mm. We're nervous. We don't like this and it's not fun. It's only after lots of practice that we get good at it. And, uh, you know, she got through that first round and she got through her second round, her third round, her fourth round. And um, for a long time, she was an assistant coach. She was nationally competitive for a while as a senior. It's just fun to see that moment when students go from mm. being terrified of the expectation of public speaking to understanding it's something that they can do. Yeah. So it's hard just, to pick any one. There's mm -hmm. also just weird moments on the road. If I can share yeah. one more, okay, we were driving home. Yeah. yeah we were, we're driving home at like 3 AM or 4 AM in the middle of nowhere. California is large and far away from everywhere that we're going Northern California, especially. And we're driving on winding roads. It's dark. It's misty. And a car passes us. I'm going to make a sound. The car goes whoop, just like that, just whoop right by us. Mm -hmm. And sticking out of the sunroof of that car is a young man in his 20s. He's completely naked. His eyes are closed. And he's just got his hands behind his head. And he's just flying through the night. 
And I don't know what was going on. I saw that for like a fraction of a second in the middle of the night driving a van. It's impacted for a you for the rest of your life. It has <laughs> stuck with me for the rest of my life. We had a big argument in the van about whether that person was from Oregon or California because we just crossed the border. And so the California people wanted to put him it's on Oregon. Definitely was, Ohio men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was something. So you learn a lot. You see some strange things. You meet incredible people. I've debated people from all over the world. I've met coaches from all over the world. It's an incredible community, and it's hard to pick any one moment for sure. Mm, that's good. No, thanks for sharing uh, some of those memorable uh, moments. And uh, I was just thinking, um, just you know, to put this humorous side spin on it. Um, they're nervous, shit, and uh, I could just imagine, like, I just had a little, uh, I don't know, uh, <laughs> thought. It's like you just walk past them, you have a puffing on a cigarette, and you just knock their knock on their, uh, or tap on their shoulder, and just ask them. First time, huh? <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> you hear the, you know, the, the veteran in, uh, in speech and debate. It's like, oh, yeah, first time, huh? <laughs> hey, you get there, kid. <laughs> I have a Rick and Morty meme uh -huh. on my door to my office where All Rick right. Sanchez is showing Morty the portal on the wall. And he's like, quick adventure, 20 minutes, in and out. <laughs> and Rick is the veteran debater and Morty is the novice debater and the portal is a life of debate obsession that is just wild and crazy. Mm. And it's that it's, it's, it's weird. It's postmodern. It's terrifying. It's sinister in a lot of ways. Toxic. Rick and Morty is a good example of the toxicity in the debate community <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, it's a lot. <laughs> yeah. In and out. Quick adventure. Last one. Promise. Promise. They just yeah, keep coming yeah. back from all. It's like a heroin. Yeah. And, and then you flash cut <laughs> to the two of them in a vehicle just sobbing. Like, what have we done? What? If, why did we do that? We have to. No, never again. But I feel amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is a debate tournament. This is what happens to you. <laughs> Range of emotions. Mm -hmm. How has your um, background in forensics influenced um, your approach to teaching communication studies? Has it um, had any influence there at all? It's huge. Uh, in high school, I was a real loser, a real loner, and I discovered speech and debate, and two things were evident to me at once. One, this was very empowering for me. It took my education and it put it into practice. And two, my debate coach was an English teacher doing it mostly for free out of a trailer in the parking lot of the high school. There was nobody that cared about forensics education. She was alone. And I was like, I want to be a debate coach. This work means something to me. It should be celebrated more. And so very early on, I decided this was something that I wanted to do. And from that point on, it has only accelerated my ability to engage with learning. I was not a reader. It was very difficult for me to read academic journals, theory books with big words. It's still hard, but debate has taught me to make a method of that struggle in ways that really accelerated my ability to participate in school. Mm. Before I found debate, I was a bad student. And once I found debate, I could get an A in pretty much any class I put my mind to. Um, and from there, it also introduced this realm that you mentioned at the top in the read-in, which is otherness, which is how we understand other people. My dog is adding things. I hope that's not too audible. but um, <laughs> That's okay. That's good. <laughs> you know, like you're in Australia and I'm in California and we're trying to communicate. And a big part of our ability to communicate is like, you know, what I think you think of me, uh, how we track our perceptions of the intentions of other people and the motives of other people. And when we argue, it gets messy. It gets 
just messy and, mm. and and in many ways aberrational. We we think we see things that are not there. And to me, this is so fascinating and deeply disturbing. It, arguing is a miracle and a tragedy at the same time. And eventually I learned that I am sitting at the intersection of what we call rhetoric and ethics. And when I found a field that was all about that, I just wanted to live there forever. And I got my master's degree because I was just emphatic that speech and debate education is important. Schools I went to gave me scholarships to do yep. this. And so that motivated my education. And it also just gave me the method and the, you know, the tools to explore it. So it's always been a real fundamental part of what I do. What key skills do students gain from forensics and uh, how do these skills translate to a success in communication studies and, and beyond? So the key skill that I really focus on when it comes to forensics and public speaking is what I call sitting in cold water, which is what happens when you try to speak in public. Um, there's a scene in the movie Inception. I'm not sure if you've seen this movie. Are you familiar with it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. You know that scene when, where, where Leonardo DiCaprio is talking to the guy in the restaurant and suddenly the guy's subconscious becomes aware that Leonardo mm. DiCaprio is trying to like hack into his dream and yep. everyone in the restaurant looks at him. Remember that? Yep. <laughs> it's a, it's such a weird scene. It's awkward. And it is because as a mammal, we mm. are biologically trained to be uncomfortable when all of the other mammals look at us. We just don't like it. It's not nice. And when we have to say things in these contexts, I say it is like this dose of sitting in cold water up to your neck. Your body is like, stop it, get out. I don't like it. And what you learn is that four speeches are, you know, a public speaking class would give you four chances to give a speech. That's enough to say that you don't like it. It's not really enough to improve. If you do forensics in the United States or in some of these other places where you have the opportunity to compete, you can give like 50 speeches a year for four years, and that teaches you how your body will respond to that panic. I, I, I think back to the student shivering before she spoke. It's like, this is biological. You are normal. The question is, what kind of biofeedback, what kind of uh, preparation can you do to make those feelings um, something that you can manage. From there, I, I talk about how we learn that arguing is predictable, that some of the most contemporary arguments, including the stuff about AI, can be traced back thousands of years. And a good argument is one without a right answer. It's because we're, we're just stuck. We're, we're troubled by stuff. And when it comes to the skills that, that you get from forensics, I think research is a huge one but also just an appreciation for understanding how nuanced arguments can be and how complex. It's not, yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's way more complex than that. Um, how does this translate into success in, in communication studies and beyond? You argue in your life with your partner. You argue with your boss. You argue with your siblings. You argue in every moment of every day. For me, this was magic to be like, Debate is not just something that we do in academia. It is literally what stitches a lot of our social relations together. Mm. And so I think that when folks can, it, the problem, the hard part is when you are trained in debate education, you go into a world that does not accept that knowledge. I tell people I'm a debate coach and they say things like, I don't ever want to debate with you instead of, can you tell me more about this argument? <laughs> and so, <laughs> or I don't ever want to talk to you. Like, you know, <laughs> exactly right. You I tell people I'm kind of like the, 
<laughs> yeah, I'm like the dentist. Nobody wants to go see me, but they all admit deep down they probably should. <laughs> and, and and what's unfortunate is that it's like I don't have who's right or who's wrong, but I am mm. definitely capable of telling you who is making a better and worse argument. Mm. And in many cases, that will not be my opinion. That will be the stuff of ancient theory that if we believe it, it leads to knowledge. And if we dis disbelieve it, it leads to ignorance. You know, it's like it's frustrating to live in a world where I train people to understand arguing and then they go in into the world and they're like, nobody cares that I understand arguing. And it's like, welcome to the tragedy of debate education. Uh, so it's hard. It, it gives you the ability to see how complicated things are and to see why things break down. But it does not really it doesn't always give you the kind of you know abilities that you want. It doesn't teach you how to win an argument. Or if it does, it does so in really complex ways. There's just as many evil people who came from forensics as good people. So it's kind of a, a split bag there. I don't know. And I just um, started to remember the, uh, actually I did have a debate class in uh, when I was in high school or um, yeah, just when I was a student. And yeah, I think it was, it was quite fun actually writing down rebuttal points and then writing down, yeah, what were you going to say next and whatnot. I like the structure of things, yeah, and structuring, you know, what you're going to say. It's quite exciting, the more, actually. Yeah. Yep. The more turns you take, the more you realize you can use that knowledge to make your first speech better, and that can be yeah. fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is also where I just interrupt to say that the mm -hmm. Melbourne University Debating Society is world-renowned, yep. like world-renowned. <laughs> we saw them at the World's Championship. Uh, Melbourne is famous for being very good at debate. And uh, if you're in and around that area, I'm sure that they have events mm. that you could find and go and watch and listen, and yeah, it would be point. worth checking yeah. out for sure. Quite local, yeah. <laughs> I'll yeah, give you anyone a in feed. Australia. It's <laughs> like there's some good teams there. <laughs> there you go. Well, I tell my students that that when it comes to the the world stage, the Australians are some of the absolute best, and and nobody really knows why. It's just this kind of combination of of wit and knowledge that that mm -hmm. everyone ascribes to australia i don't know where that comes from but that is the kind of stereotype if you will of australian debating and you will see it in deep out rounds at world championship tournaments year after year after year for sure okay if i find out more information i'll yeah, definitely give you give you all the uh all the ghosts yeah, like it's worth yeah. looking into. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, how do you incorporate critical thinking into your communication studies curriculum? This is a great question because so many people want more critical thinking. And when I ask people what do they mean by that, almost nobody has a good answer. It's like when I ask you what do you mean by critical thinking, I get very generic responses. Yeah, I'm just throwing it and, out there. So, yeah, you, yeah you, it's such you an incredible question. As you will. <laughs> where, I, where I come from, it's like this is a question of whose perspective do you use to describe right. what you mean by, by critical. And, and in the intersectional feminist approach, it's all about power. It's like hmm. where does power sit when we communicate? The Enlightenment model wants us to think of the truth, this like knowledge as something that is disembodied, and we want to get down to objective truths and in many places, including like neuroscience and definitely in critical theory, that model has been pretty roundly rejected as um, in many ways, very biased, uh, patriarchal, obviously. Now, when we describe critical thinking uh, personally, I look to people like Sweeney Madison, to Bell Hooks, and for them, communication is always both 
an embodied and communicative act. We have to come to grips with both the kind of objective truths of what our communication does and the subjective realities behind the things that we mean and intend when we communicate. And that creates a very, very complex level of critical thinking where things can be true and not true at the same time. We'll get rid of like either or thinking and try to embrace a kind of both and dichotomy. But at the end of the day, it comes down to questions about power. So when I teach communication studies, I start with Sweeney Madison's book on critical ethnography. My cinema stuff leans heavily on Bell Hooks's book called Real to Real, R-E-E-L to R-E-A-L. The Real War Project is R-E-E-L, War Project, and that's invoking hmm. Bell Hooks explicitly to okay. be like, um, movies make culture. I was going to say, I heard that from someone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, movies make culture, and it is not just anyone that gets to speak, and the power politics of communication always matter. So for me, when I think of critical thinking, uh, it's it's just, you know, where does power come from? Uh, how is power situated in this communication? What alternatives could there be? Those are the questions that I ask. Hmm. Do you think it's a subjective or objective kind of a topic and then critical thinking it seems like it's more subjective isn't it or it's based this off is, it's this is a good question and if you get to Sweeney madison's critical ethnography book it's at the heart of her introduction oh, okay and, yeah. and here's, yeah. It, yeah here's what she says is that okay. that we have to live in a world where both the subjective and the objective matter um, we cannot imagine human communication in a world that is wholly objective because everyone can interpret something in different ways. Here's, and, here's the point about subjectivity and objectivity from, yep. from Madison, if I could get back to it. It's, yep. it's a fun question because what, what, like a lot of the times, you know, for example, uh, one of the examples that comes up a lot for me in this example, when we talk about this is like indigenous mascots. You see these in the United States a lot. The Kansas City football team just won our Super Bowl over here. Uh, but you also see it in baseball. You see it in hockey. You see it in basketball all over the place. And there are large subsets of the population that say that more than being offensive, this is a kind of structural violence. This is a form of retelling settler colonial genocide that is whitewashing. It is apologetic. And it participates in a narrative of domination and control that is not incidental and definitely not subjective. But that's not what the majority of people think or see when they view that communication, if that makes sense. And Madison wants to imagine a world of critical thinking where rather than saying it is or it isn't, we try to navigate a space where we say it can be both of these things at the same time. And the question then becomes, where do we side? What version of the truth are we going to propel forward? And when it comes to communication in particular, the subject is an inherent component of communication. Communication is always conceived of as a subject to the world. And so the realities of the subject can never be divorced from communication. As much as we want to find objectivity... It is impossible. Richard Burton is a neuroscientist. He was the chief of neurology at Mount Zion in San Francisco. His book, On Being Certain, says that certainty is a biological impossibility. We cannot do it with our brain. 
because our brain is a subject, there's an I in there. <laughs> and so we can feel certain, but it definitely ain't real. It's always this question of how that individual subject was persuaded. So rather than trying to inhabit a world where we dismiss subjectivity, we try to account for it. Madison's term is positionality. There's a whole method. There is an ethics. There is a performance to it. It's a, it's a really important question, but it's one that I wish people would 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 get um, a little more curious about because I think too often people see subjectivity as mere bias, and it's yeah. way more than that. Okay. Way more than that. That's what I was thinking as well, but yeah, definitely we'll get onto that another time. Um, yeah, it's a rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and objectivity itself is inherently biased. This is the, the, the fact that in, enlightenment thinkers don't like is that you cannot have objectivity without having a subject at the heart of determining what is and isn't true. And that means it must be biased. Gravity itself breaks in a black hole. We just don't know what happens in there. You know, the, hmm. the math collapses. <laughs> so it's complex. And I tell people Einstein himself would say that light and time and space and speed and mass, that's all relative. It depends on who's asking the question. And that's positionality in a lot of ways. Hmm. Awesome. And yeah, definitely link me that book actually, because I, I will. Yeah. It went in one ear out the other, actually. No, it's a tough read. <laughs> Sweeney Madison is famously difficult to read, but she is worth every yeah. hour that you spend on it. And if you do get into it and want to talk about it, let me know. Cause it's, it's a good one. Yeah, sure. Aaron. Um, could you share a, an example of the transformative impact of forensics on his students growth? Um, you know, probably going back to, yeah, maybe first question, but yeah, that transformative impact of forensics itself, just the, the power of it. There's so many examples of this, but I would, you know, point to the students that are absolutely terrified before their first debate round. And by the time they're a senior, they're at least in a competitive out round. So if you go to a debate tournament, here's what happens. Most people are like, what does this even look like? You show up at 8 a.m. and you are assigned a, a side. You are the affirmative or you are negative, and you do not even know the topic yet. You just know that you are affirmative and you are debating Lewis and Clark College, and uh, this is your judge. And then you get the topic, and then you debate, and then you are told whether you won or lost, and that's round one. You will do four rounds on a Friday, two rounds on a Saturday, and if you are doing a good job, then you will emerge into elimination rounds very much like any bracketed tournament you've ever seen. And for me, the most like exciting moment of transformation from a student comes when you start, you will lose almost every debate. It is almost impossible to win consistently as a novice in debate because most of the people there, including the people calling themselves novices, have a lot of prior experience. There are high schools, there are junior high schools that train people to debate. Uh, so when you start, you just lose. You just I, I compare it to the scene in The Matrix where Neo gets totally destroyed for two thirds of the movie before he realizes that there are these little coded rules in there. And once you can navigate that, there's this light bulb that goes on and the hmm. student suddenly realizes that there's a structure to the rules of the way that arguing happens. There's a structure to the ways that arguments are made. And as soon as that happens in practice, they go from making arguments that are like kind of eh, to arguments that are like very smart. They surprise themselves. They surprise everyone in the room because debate theory has a way of pointing you towards very smart things to say. And that moment is like magic. It's just so exciting when that happens. And I've seen it happen with student after student after student. 
if you're a novice and you stick with it for a year or two with a good program around you, the light will go on. And when it does, it's like you can stop bullets. It's very exciting. <laughs> That's good. I like how you uh, reference the movies as well as a, yeah. a backing. Um, and just a side <laughs> note, uh, I was watch, I was listening to uh, Fools of Glory in the week, and um, I loved uh, the analysis of uh, you know Karate Kid, and as I was discuss with you guys in the week, <laughs> and then Major League I just finished uh, yesterday, and I was uh, I'm about halfway through Rocky. <laughs> There you go. And I'm looking forward so Major to Major League uh, is a on, good yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Where we Major dig into some one. of those indigenous mascot yes. representation debates, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. And when you brought that up, yeah, then I was just hearing that like, oh, that was last night. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 Definitely. Um, how do you connect the practical aspects of forensics with communication theories in your teaching? So this is interesting because forensics can, in many ways, be very absurd. Um, debate education does not really determine who's right or wrong. It just determines who won this debate. And so in a lot of ways, debate can be very, it, it, sometimes it's too fast. If you listen to American debate, you cannot understand a single word the, the people are saying because they speak too quick. And that's a strategy. Sometimes their arguments will be preposterous and, and ridiculous. Australians uh, speak fast. Yeah. And Americans speak faster. <laughs> Oh, I will show you. I will show you policy debaters that speak okay. like 280 words a minute. It's like it's literally incomprehensible. Uh, I'll send you some good stuff. And yeah, if you sure. want, you can drop it here in the episode because it's, it's nuts. And, and when they do that, you have to train yourself to listen. And people are like, what is the point of that? What is the point? You know? And so for me, the, the practical aspects of forensics with communication theory is first and foremost, always ethics. There are mm -hmm. consequences to the way that you argue. Okay. Uh, every argument you make is is your moment of manufacturing a kind of a world. And one of the things that we say in debate is the arguments you run, that determines who you are. That determines who you are. You cannot pretend to be someone in a debate. If you run an arrogant, mean, like spirited argument, then that's who you are in that debate, even if you don't mean it. For that moment in the debate, that is who you are. So for me, the, the realities of praxis, the fact that your intentions and your theory determine your personality is a fundamental real-world component of communication theory. And then the basic one is research. Communication theory is all about trying to do research, trying to figure out how much knowledge is out there on any given question, and debate theory is very good at teaching us that. Awesome. Um what uh, role does forensics play in fostering effective communication skills? In many ways, it's counterproductive. You can tell a debater when you hear them. Mm. They speak quickly. They're too certain. They're a little arrogant. Uh, <laughs> for me, it's like I, when I hear someone, I'm like, did you do debate? And I'm like, I did do debate. <laughs> and suddenly, we just kind of hear it in each other. It's bizarre. And you stop talking <laughs> to yeah. the person. No, no. <laughs> well, I Communication mean, I, gets I, slower. No, yeah, the... Personally, I get pumped. Whenever okay. I meet someone, this pumped about it. But I, I think when it comes to like good, effective communication and like what you can learn from forensics. Mm -hmm. For me, the big takeaway is just how hard it is, how incredibly challenging it is to make an argument, to be heard, to face disappointment, and then to turn around and say, okay, what if I try it like this? We are living in a world where we are taught to just dismiss the other side, to say you're right and they're wrong, and it is very easy and very comfortable to do that. And I think that for me, forensics taught me that if you reject that thinking 
and instead try to just dwell in the complexity. There is a richer, more interesting, uh, you know, much more vivid way of thinking of the world. And to me, that's what effective communication is all about. It's not binaristic. It's trying to tease apart the complexities rather than shut them down. Mm, that's right. I agree with that. Um, how do you encourage critical analysis of media and communication in the digital age? My short answer is podcasting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've got <laughs> the, uh, thanks to my relationship with Biggs there uh, and the uh, Redwood Sound Labs network that we've got cooking, I've uh, made the Alien Movie Project, the Real War Project, R-E-E-L War Project, and most recently Fields of Glory. Mm -hmm. And this is me trying to give people the opportunity to listen to a communication professor and another individual with Alien Movie Project. It's a pro professional wedding photographer. With the Real War Project, it's a veteran from Operation Iraqi Freedom, the second Purple Heart veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, Charles says. And with Fields of Glory, it's Biggs, who's just the biggest cinephile, you know, along with Charles, I think I've ever met. Um, it's me just trying to communicate what I know with another person in a conversational space. I think that the most important thing to know about media and criticism is that there is a narrative, a story. There are affects. We will feel good about this story. We will feel bad about this story. The music will tell us. And there mm -hmm. are production politics, particularly departments of defense weapons manufacturers, uh, state interests, and policing entities and things. Uh, Michael Lechuga's book, Visions of Invasion, is exceptional on this. It has just come out. These people invest billions of dollars into Transformer movies, <laughs> and that is because they work. And the, the U.S. Navy would not be lining up to make a Transformer movie if there was not some kind of, quote, national security interest there. And I really beg audiences to ask questions like, you know, what do movies teach us about violence? What do movies teach us about guns? What do movies teach us about foreigners, people who aren't from around here? How do we respond to an alien? These are existential questions. And while we don't all know each other, I, you, you know, you and I have never really met. We absolutely share an understanding of lots of movies, including Inception and probably lots of others. And that that's consequential, and I want audiences to think real hard about that. I'm raising a six-year-old boy, and some of the first things that he's taught to do are to fight. You know, he's taught mm -hmm. to to kick and to leap and to punch and to save the day. <laughs> and in many ways, I want to encourage that. But by and large, I'm like, let's think critically about <laughs> who it is that's teaching you to fight, and uh, who they want you to fight, and why. <laughs> you know, it's it's scary stuff. So. That to me is the big takeaway for media communication in the digital age. It's getting the affective politics, especially, are getting more visceral. Lechuga has an incredible argument that says that the, the felt experience of aliens is becoming more and more vivid. Mm -hmm. And if you are a defense contractor, that means something. That's consequential. That means they can sell the idea that aliens are coming or here or a threat in ways that are unique in history. So we should all be aware of the potential consequences of that. Okay. And yeah, and on your point on podcasting and, you know, what you're doing with Fields of Glory, just wanted to say, um, yeah, I'll probably never watch a movie the same way I did before again. <laughs> this is great <laughs> Always, because yeah, I, you know, yeah. 
this is something students say to me every year. Okay. And again, I have to point to, to to bell hooks. There's a famous saying behind every quote, woke individual are a bunch of exhausted feminists. And um, here I point to bell hooks saying that once you get that critical consciousness, it's hard to turn it off. Mm. And, and, and that's what that's, that's hooks. That's marks. That's that critical consciousness. Now. But it's, it's a good thing. Whispering. Yeah, I think so. As well. Little choices can have a huge impact. Little tiny choices can have a massive impact. Our episode in the Real War Project on the movie Glory about the 54th Massachusetts is one of my favorites because this was a movie that defined me in a lot of ways. And it mm. erases a Medal of Honor winner. It erases the first black Medal of Honor winner who survived the battle. It puts him in the ground. And it is very fascinating to us that that's the choice that it made. Uh, especially given that that they didn't have to do that. Like Denzel Washington could have gotten a Medal of Honor at the end of that movie, but he did not. <laughs> and, and we don't know why. We can never answer the, the motivistic question of why, but we can mm -hmm. ask all sorts of questions about what are the consequences of that structural choice and how does that participate into tropes of what we call like anti-blackness and stuff like that. That's what we try to do. And once you start looking... There's an Invader Zim episode where he puts the germ goggles on and suddenly mm. everything's covered in germs and he doesn't want to look through the goggles anymore. That's criticism right there. It's a it's a fun I, I'm not a war movie guy. I, yeah. I like I don't like war movies, but I the war imaginary is alive and well and uh it's one I want to understand. So cool. Um it wraps up uh the topic there on um forensics and speech debate. Um I just wanted to ask the the two other questions that I did ask uh, Biggs and I feel, feel this more, yeah, it's appropriate for you guys. Um, firstly, what is your favorite movie or book quote and why? I had to sit with this one for a long time because I don't want to okay. be the one that's like, here's a bunch, but here's what I got. It is from a book. It is also you can from give a me movie. a bunch if you like, but yeah, maybe yeah. top and then top 10. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, there you go. Right, I'll just sit here and I'll just list all my favorite quotes. Uh, but this this one's very good. This one comes from the book and the movie Contact. Uh, it is one of my favorites. A lot of people do not like the ending, and I will defend it every day, all day. As a debate coach, I'm ready to go to bat for a bad ending, and this one in particular is one that I'll fight for. But if you see that movie at the end of that movie, uh, you know, spoiler alert, Jodie Foster meets an alien, and the alien says, in in all of this emptiness, in all of our searching the only thing that makes the cosmos bearable is each other. And to me, as a debate educator, as a media critic, it is just such a powerful moment to stop and think about the magic of symbiosis and the ways that that connectivity really drives, as far as I look at it, evolution, the universe, in so many interesting and exciting ways. Uh, there's a Harvard mathematician who says the struggle to survive should be thought of more as the snuggle to survive. Symbiosis is far more adaptive than predation. And that quote to me really gets to the heart of what I am interested in when it comes to otherness. Other people can be so terrifying and so baffling, but at the same time, when we're alone in the world and we cry out, we want an answer. And when we get that answer, it's so magic in a lot of ways. So the book is great. The movie is great. They're so different. They're so different. And and both are worth looking at in terms of how that quote works. So that's my answer. That's my short answer. <laughs> okay. No, that's all right. I Aaron, I love your voice. Um, you know, if you didn't have any <laughs> others, um, yeah, definitely I'll let you yeah. I'll let you go on. But um I don't know. Did did you want to 
share anymore sure. or up to you <laughs> you got a I'll top five <laughs> yeah sure well i i have at least uh you know two you make more everything sound right exciting now. aaron <laughs> <laughs> well well there's two more that i'll give you and there's one that i that, that's that's sure. very similar to the one i just gave you the movie arrival has amy adams in it forrest whitaker it is so similar to contact and it is so different contact is 1997 i think arrival is like 2014 very different movies but very very similar and in Amy Adams, there, she says that we have to like make sure that these aliens understand the difference between a tool and a weapon because language is messy and sometimes a word can be both. And it is the both part where the critical thinking conversation comes in that we have had, where rather than being like, is it a tool or is it a weapon? Amy Adams's character is like, oh, it can be both at the same time. And that is so true for words. In my dissertation, I say sticks and stones will break our bones. Names get you shot. Names get you deported. It's not just names will never hurt me. Names get you shunned. And that is some of the most existential stuff that exists for people. So that quotation is very, very good. And the last one I'll give you from one of my favorite movies on the planet, The Thin Red Line, they say every man fights their own war. And that movie is one that I'm thinking about a lot right now, and it is because it has no central character, and everyone is just baffled by the violence that surrounds them, and yet they all participate in their own way. And 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 to me, the fact that we all have our own version of violence culture, and yet we all embody it in some way or another is kind of the big tragedy. And so that was one that I thought about putting on that list. But I don't want to use a war movie for number one, so I'll put it as number three. I'm a pacifist. Contact and Arrival get the first two spots. <laughs> yeah, I've seen Contact and Arrival. Um, actually, Arrival was a, a bit of a surprising movie to me. I thought it was. Uh, it took me a while to get around to it, watching actually watching it, and then um, yeah, I actually got into it a little bit at the uh, at the end there, and the whole like yeah, how do we contact or how do we um communicate with this alien right or this uh, yeah. this thing? <laughs> and, the implications um, with mm-hmm. language and and time are incredible. Yeah in that movie very smart the short story is very good too it's a short story called um Mm. oh gosh i can't remember what the short story is called but it's it's a chang yeah c-h-i-a-n-g i I think is the author of Mm -hmm. the short story based on a book by a world war ii vet and the thin red line came out the exact same year that saving private ryan did it was Mm -hmm. nominated for almost every academy award that saving private ryan was and it lost almost every nomination except for Best Picture, to Shakespeare in Love, which was just maddening to me at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but in my opinion, Saving Private Ryan is every wrong lesson you can learn in a war movie, and The Thin Red Line is all the right ones. And the fact that Saving Private Ryan has defined so much of the imaginary from all the games and like the TV series and everything to me is really tragic. And Biggs and I are looking back at The Thin Red Line right now, and that's kind of one of the reasons... I just think it's so much more thoughtful. It's one of the most thoughtful war movies I've seen. So Upcoming episode? Yeah, well, the real war project is up to Charles. He he picks the batches. There's three movies mm. per batch, and then yeah. we look back at the batch. And if he does not pick the thin red line this season, I might go all the way to Michigan and like break his windows because we need to watch this movie. <laughs> we'll we, take this off recording. <laughs> yeah, it's one of mine. If you listen to The Real War Project, we spend so much time talking about The Thin Red Line, but we have yeah. we still haven't done an episode on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tears of the Sun has Hans Zimmer doing the score, and the score for that terrible movie sounds a lot like The Thin Red Line. It's very interesting. <laughs> and so I know I love Hans Zimmer and his uh, compositions. Yes. 
I was uh, going down this rabbit hole the other day where I was kind of comparing him to all of the famous Nazi propagandists of the time because Hans Zimmer has defined a generation of American storytelling, and it is a war propaganda story. Let me tell you. <laughs> I love the guy. He's amazing. But the way that he's defined our imaginary is kind of creepy. Nuts. Hmm. Just to explore that, but probably another time. Sure. Final <laughs> question. When you pass on, what would you like to have been known for? I, I thought about this one a lot too. And I listened to Big's answer. Yeah. I like his answer that when it comes to my family, like to my kid, I want to be a good dad. And to Kate, I want to be a good husband. That's the most important thing to me. Uh, but just generally speaking, I want people to remember that I was fun, that I'm fun. That's the answer I want. I think learning should be fun. Hard learning can be fun. Debate makes hard learning fun, I think. And criticism is not just about, I mean, it's about naming power and that's never fun. But it should be entertaining. And and Charles and I use a lot of parody. Kate and I use a lot of parody to kind of try to poke fun at the power structures that we see. And if you're not having fun, then learning is really tough. So that's my answer. Definitely. And I, I see you embodying that. So that's, that's definitely definitely accurate. That's my I enjoy my work. <laughs> I appreciate do. that. It looks like yeah. <laughs> it's definitely a good conversation. I just appreciate your show. I hope you keep up the good work and thanks for, you know, the attention you've given to me and to the, the network and all that. Just really appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. You are listening to Noteworthy Differences.